Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash noripodcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash noripodcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I have Dr. Nick Cowan, lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Lincoln, back on to do a bonus episode. Nick, I actually just the other day, someone asked me why we don't do blockchain episodes nearly as much as we once did. And you had sent me this paper. Your your timing is terrific. You, <laughs> How many opportunities in your life have come from just sending the right email at the right time? Oh, well, actually, I suppose my best option, or rather like my best opportunities have usually emerged by me being the only person who bothered to turn up. Some of my collaborations have started by me turning up to a job interview and realizing, oh, well, there's kind of two positions going. Oh, and there's only two candidates. One of them is me. So yeah, that's, I guess it's, it's linked, but I think sort of getting in the room is often the battle and it's even better if maybe the room is not too full. Okay, that that works for me then. Uh, Well, this paper that you wrote is called Markets for Rules, The Promise and Peril of Blockchain Distributed Governance. I am very excited to take a sort of political economic look at blockchains and why they're exciting from that kind of lens. We've danced around this issue a few times, but I think it's one of the parts of the entire ecosystem that is really quite intellectually thrilling and vibrant. So why don't you introduce this paper and what it's about, and then we're going to just tear into it. Fantastic. Essentially, um, I came at this topic by observing a lot of people talking about blockchains as a replacement for currencies. Uh, so there was this idea, I think if you kind of look at you know the original blueprint uh, by that uh, anonymous Satoshi who kind of put out Bitcoin, he kind of explained that there was this problem of third-party reliance on payment systems across the internet. And so... Uh, I think ultimately he was thinking that the the biggest third party of all is the state and namely central banks who have this ability to create money out of thin air. And a lot of other organizations have the capacity to sort of pump up money using various credit instruments. And so, and they're kind of licensed and they have this kind of interesting kind of peculiar relationship uh, with the state that kind of bears the name on currency. And um, Satoshi sort of launched this kind of, um, well, first he launched Bitcoin and there were a lot of tokens that kind of copied the idea. And basically you set up this regime where no single agent can actually control the value or the amount of a token that's kind of in a system. And I found that, you know, really fascinating uh, once I kind of started to get a grip on how it works. And so it was this idea that basically you have a rule set that you have to opt into. You have to have some, the moment, for the moment at least, you have some, you have to have some pretty powerful computer equipment to kind of process it. So you end up with a network that basically processes transactions which up to a certain point are kind of irreversible 
unless you kind of unwind the whole system, which means that each individual transaction is kind of resistant to being manipulated ex post. And um, I found that very exciting. I could see, you know, how useful that could be in kind of environments, you know, especially if you're making transactions over the internet where you don't know people. And for some reason or another, you need to make a transfer and you don't want to rely on some kind of on a sort of third party understanding the nature of that of that arrangement. And then a lot of new ideas kind of came up, um, especially with the launch of Ethereum, which is a kind of smart ledger as opposed to a kind of public ledger, which is what um, which is what Bitcoin is. And I saw a lot of ideas kind of emerging on what kind of sort of mechanisms, what kind of applications these things could could do. But I noticed it hadn't really been that much theorized in terms of how it might compete or complement existing governance arrangements. And um, I, I suppose, you know, I, I'm a criminologist, uh, so I, I, I'm often looking at agents that are operating outside the law. And I noticed that one thing that was happening when I was writing this paper was that um, uh, sex workers were using uh, mainstream internet platforms to advertise their services and also to make transactions. They were using things like PayPal and kind of you know, mainstream third parties. Um, and what they're doing, you know, in most states is is uh, is legal, they can, or at least they can find ways of, of providing their services legally. But, uh, you know, they're stigmatized. Uh, people don't like sex workers for various reasons. And um, normally, uh, states are often finding excuses to kind of um, delegitimize them in some way and to try and discourage their activities. And so they've been passing various laws and regulations. Um, you know, a, a big one was the Foster-Sester Act in the US, but we ha- kind of have uh, parallel, uh, less formal mechanisms in the in the UK that kind of discourage these kind of mainstream third-party agencies from processing uh, what I take to be le- legitimate beneficial transactions. And uh, the advantage of uh, these sort of blockchain uh, arrangements is that actually, if you have a system which works for payments and works between two parties, uh, there's no way in which a state or a third party can block those transactions. And so effectively, what you can do is go from merely kind of exchanging payments, merely being a payment processor, as sort of Bitcoin is, to actually building in some regimes where you can actually um, sell your services directly online. And uh, kind of, and once once they're kind of um, once once it's provided, uh, once certain uh, keys have been made, you can have payments uh, or, or other forms of value can be transferred. And so I think it's it's very exciting. I think it's very exciting in terms of uh, allowing stigmatized transactions to take place. I think it's great for allowing global commerce to take place without reliance on um, governmental structures. And I think it's really great from the perspective of reducing uh, censorship in the long term as, uh, as well. So, yeah, no, I, that's kind of what got me, got me going about. And I, I suppose the, the other side of it is some of our best institutional technology is the constitution. You know, the US Constitution, the less formal constitution that we have in the United Kingdom. Yeah, you guys are lazy. You you didn't even write yours down. Write yours down. Super lazy. Super lazy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, it's only recently that we've got some laws that appear to be constitution-y because (laughs) they they kind of go, if unless explicitly abridged, they count as law and they, they count as slightly higher than ordinary legislation. We didn't normally have that at all. Nevertheless, we had certain norms and conventions which were meant to kind of constrain the government, basically ensure that everyone was subject to the same law, so equality before the law, and also the rule of law. So in other words, if you're expecting the government to do something, 
if you perform a certain action, it does it. You have a right to get married by a representative of the state, uh, unless there are very specific reasons why you can't, that kind of thing. And that's great. It's a wonderful, you know, this is like the, the, the nuts and bolts of liberty. But there's a, there's a, there's a challenge. It's always very reliant on basically state officials being willing to enforce the law impartially. And we need very, very strong norms in order to kind of get that kind of level of commitment. And of course, in practice, it's often abridged. We have this problem of corrupt, you know, we have corrupt agents. We have people who struggle to access services for whatever reason. And uh, I feel that the sort of hard-coded nature of kind of blockchain, which is able to store value and also decide precisely when that value is transferred on the basis of a shared set of rules, means you can kind of um, avoid some of the human level uh, implementation problems. So I think, although I don't see it replacing human constitutions as such, you still need people to be willing to kind of go in and enforce some aspects of it. Some features of our bureaucracies, our kind of constitutional framework, might be automatable. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where where I am at at the moment. That's that's kind of what the paper is about. That's great. There's there's so much there to talk about. When I think about liberalism in the broadest sense, I think about it as having a weighty appreciation for the idea of consent, and that in order for a political institution to be legitimate, the people underneath it have to have consented in some meaningful, substantive kind of way, and. If governance were to happen through some sort of blockchain process, that seemingly would be voluntary in a new sort of way, because this problem is actually surprisingly hard. Um, you're born into a society, um, you sort of are acculturated into it with the language and how you're able to think is shaped by that. And it's hard to know when you're eight, nine, 14, which rules are actually good ones and which ones are not, and trying to figure out exactly at what point consent comes into this. Because in one sense, you're not meaningfully consenting to civilization. Like you have, There's nowhere for you to go. You can move to another state, but it's not like you can go somewhere and start over for the most part. But blockchains seemingly offer you the ability to do some of that, where there are places digitally, virtually, that allow people to opt in and I don't know, create new rules and experiment. Of course, there are also downsides to this. When you're talking about financial transactions happening, I'm sure the ones that you've named may rub people the wrong way too and say, actually, I don't know that we as a society or civilization should encourage um, sex work or, or drugs or, or even things that are more objectively pernicious than that. But then if there's a permissionless system where someone can transact in a credible fashion to provide and receive those services, that's also a really big risk too. So those are two two big questions, but maybe maybe let's start with the first and we'll get to the second one later. The first question is just people being able to opt in to new types of governance via blockchain. And is yeah. that actually a way of solving liberalism's because liberalism gets really weird and abstract about its relationship to consent, right? So John Rawls gets yeah. into this. Would you, if you didn't know who you would be, would you consent to this theoretical society? Mm. And that's a way of, of sort of relying upon consent, but it's not how one normally experiences consent either. But blockchain is a much more explicit, direct uh, experience of political consent in certain kinds of ways. Is that even a fair uh, understanding of what is happening here? 
Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that it may turn out that blockchains have a kind of slightly more complicated relationship with consent, just as we initiated liberal states on the idea that they should be subject to the consent of the governed. We have to be careful that something similar distortionary doesn't happen with blockchains as well. But I, I suppose when we're looking at consent, you've kind of got a few visions. You kind of got this idea that maybe we could form a society on the basis of unanimous consent. And maybe if we had some kind of desert island experience, a lot of that everyone, you know, had at least the opportunity to go to their own island if they wanted to, then maybe you could imagine some scenario in which you could you could actually have that. Uh, you know, some philosophers have sometimes kind of tried to figure that out. Normally, that doesn't work for a kind of advanced community because, you know, if you have a single holdout, someone who doesn't consent, and you're in a community, then you're basically never going to emerge out of anarchy. No one's ever going to end up giving any of their power. So what do you do instead? Well, you have tacit consent, whereby you kind of say, well, if you can leave... And maybe we have to kind of discuss what does that mean effectively? Like, maybe if there's a wilderness you can join, you could say, well, okay, you can leave. It's costly, but you can leave. If there are other societies not too far away, then maybe that kind of ups the kind of reasonableness of tacit consent a bit. And um, and I guess the idea is that kind of blockchains might be able to kind of increase that a little bit because it might be able to take components of governance relations which have been typically associated with territorial states and instead kind of say, actually, that doesn't really have to be done territorially anymore. So I, I guess it could be a way of kind of not producing, you know, kind of absolute consent, but kind of getting more towards the kind of real tacit consent that maybe kind of Locke kind of spoke about in terms of, you know, you know, when you're an adult, you're allowed to leave. You can find any society that will take you. And that's uh, one way of getting liberal consent. The other way of looking at it is to say that, you know, to think again about the consent of the governed, and that's to kind of say, well, what you really need is input from the community into how you are governed. You're kind of at that point kind of saying the community exists and you're part of the community. You know, that's kind of like a, that's sort of like a given. And that's where things like majority rule have, have normally come in as a kind of mechanism for uh, trying to make sure that the state behaves in a way that is generally to the public's welfare. And um, that's better than minority rule. It's better than autocratic rule. It only works, once again, if you've got this kind of constitution, you've kind of got these norms that says you're going to enforce rules impartially. And even when you have got that, you still tend to have this problem of kind of insider interests, being able to control the agenda, and also this possibility of majorities are predating off minorities. So that's the kind of challenge that kind of liberal political economy has faced. When we think to like, I don't know, I think the last time there was a big, big change in the way that we kind of engaged in in sort of serious political organization was probably, you know, the the American Revolution. You know, I think a lot of the successful ones since then have tended to kind of use that as a as a kind of model. And, um, you know, if you look at many countries today, if they transition towards democracies, they often introduce a constitution, a formal written constitution. They try and introduce some kind of judiciary. That's often a bit harder to kind of get, you know, get that independent judiciary working. And they also often call themselves federal. And that's the kind of other way in which you sort of get little bits of this consent going on. So although it's probably prohibitively difficult for many Americans to leave America, uh, not least because, you know, a lot of other countries are a lot poorer, 
So there's going to be costs when you have that. Uh, at least you can move to a different uh, to a different state. And although I suppose in the grand scheme of things, most of the states are run along pretty similar lines. At least they're kind of competing with each other. They're competing with each other for population. At least that's hopefully what they're doing when they're not kind of competing for special favors in the federal government. But there's this idea that kind of um, states like to be growing. Uh, traditionally, they've uh, they've benefited from that, and as a result, they're disciplined by each other. So there's this sort of um, this, is, this sort of notion of competitive federalism is um, it's been the best that we've we've had so far when we've managed to get it going. I see these things as um, potentially, uh, I suppose they could be fast track. They can kind of be uh, be energized with the use of blockchain technology. We got into this a little bit recently on an episode I did with Quill Robinson, who identifies as some flavor of conservative. We were talking about the idea of subsidiarity, that things should be devolved to the lowest level possible, the most local level possible is where we should solve most of our problems. And I like that idea. I'm, I'm very attracted to it. But I also feel like it needs something complementary, something like a 14th Amendment that guarantees due process. So if you have if you have various states who are claiming states' rights for local governance, and they want to do that in order to uh, enforce Jim Crow laws or segregation, that's a time where you have a higher power say, actually, this is inappropriate use of subsidiarity. You are not allowed to do that under this federal system. And I think that's sort of objectively uh, a good way to be. And you could say, well, those people are free to leave if they want to. And, and sure, if you're being oppressed, I guess you could try and go somewhere less oppressive. But it also doesn't seem totally fair that the onus is on the person being harmed to escape in that kind of way. Or you have other examples too, something like, I know in the UK, the tax justice movement feels very strongly that if you have competition for rules under various states, you will have firms that will leave high tax, high regulation jurisdictions, and they will go to jurisdictions without that. And that leads to a loss of the tax base. It means the people who live in those lower regulation jurisdictions are perhaps exploited. They don't have the same protections under the law as they might in the UK or elsewhere. Or maybe a more uh, somewhat silly example is film subsidies among the various United States where you have places like New Mexico, which I think Breaking Bad might have happened in Tucson were it not that New Mexico subsidized <laughs> it. And then Georgia is famous for giving lots in subsidies. Louisiana too. But I think it's a bad deal for them. So they, there's this like race for them to offer as much as possible. And I think states end up losing. They get the prestige of having films there. But it's worse for the citizens who are taxed to, to pay for giving all these tax breaks and uh, subsidies of various flavors to um, film companies. So wow. sorry, there's a whole bunch of examples. Sorry, you, you, you can jump you've, in. You've, you've, you've blown my mind, Ross. Is, is that why Ozark is, is set where it is and why it's called what it is? Seriously, I would I would not even doubt it. I bet you someone was just like, what is a state that will give me money to, to do this <laughs> crime serial drama? Hmm. Wow. And they think it raises the prestige of the state. I mean, to be fair, I, I mean, I want to visit the Ozarks now. Is that um, is it? What is it? Arkansas? Is that where it's based? Or is uh, it? To, to be honest, I don't. Missouri? I don't quite know. All I know is it's in this sort of marshland of of like the uh, yeah the the, the, oh, marshland, the, the, marshland. the, the, the yeah. I I don't know. I was looking up whether there was like a university there or something because it kind of looked looked kind of interesting. But yeah, now I I think you're you're getting at a very important point there, Ross, because it's sort of um yeah. So this is something which which states just fall into, and we do this in Britain as well. You know, everyone loves film subsidies. 
And you're right. Basically, it's because it benefits the immediate. Well, it, it, I mean, the public kind of like it. So you can kind of like, you know, you can project it as being part of the public good. So it's it's quite it's sort of launderable in that way. It doesn't look like it's crazy. You know, it's nice for the filmmakers. Obviously, they benefit because they get like this amazing tax subsidy. And it also sort of gives, you know, the politicians get a chance to kind of like, you know, hang out with movie stars, which I mean, who who doesn't? So you know, <laughs> it's uh, it, great, great, great fun. And so it's, it, it's natural to understand why you would fall into doing that if you're not constrained from doing that. And the sort of, I, and this is the main problem, it's something that, that James Buchanan called moving onto off diagonals. And so basically, there's a set of common rules, which it makes sense for everyone to follow. And so that's how you get people to opt in. But once you're once you've got everyone opting in, producing goods, paying their taxes, you know, supporting the state in various ways, then it's very, very easy just at the margin, especially if it's a small thing like taxes for, you know, for, for movie stars, you know, it's such a small group. You just move slightly off and you just go like, oh, yeah, actually, we can make everyone just slightly worse off in a way that will be imperceptible. In fact, they might even not even think they were worse off because they're kind of, they think it's sort of good that, you know, for various reasons, they think it's going to be good for the economy, even though it's, it, you know, when you, when, you, when you do the calculations, it doesn't normally work out that way. Same with sort of sports stadiums and things. So you kind of move off and you go, oh yeah, I can just take this, you know, this little extra bonus and I can uh, keep it for myself or find a way of getting it through to myself by distributing it to my friends. And that's precisely what a kind of um, a fiscal compact or a kind of fiscal constitution is meant to stop. But on the other hand, it's very, very hard to put that down on paper and enforce it in such a way that you can't avoid this happening, that you can avoid this happening every time, because there's often some kind of public good arrangement. You know, you have to build a hospital, someone has to build it, someone's going to specifically benefit from that outlay that the state the state has given. So it, it's very hard to kind of uh, to, to prevent that when you're just relying on, you know, I, I suppose, parchment and a judicial system to try and um, restrict it. And I think that is where a kind of um, uh, blockchain rules can kind of come in, because it means there's a little bit more opportunity for hypothecation. Something which, you know, I kind of debate with myself and with others sometimes is this idea of a universal basic income as a kind of replacement for existing welfare states. And from a kind of Buchananite, from a constitutional perspective, it looks really attractive because it's like very simple. It's very clear. There's no room for like giving a little bit of extra income to film stars or what have you. The idea is everyone gets the same and it's based on uh, presumably a progressive tax base. So it all comes in, it all goes out. And there's nothing that a, that a policymaker can do once it's established. The problem is, of course, is if it's written on parchment or it's just, you know, passed by a legislator, then before long, you can kind of carve out exceptions. You're going to go like, ah, I don't think ex-felons should get the universal basic income. It's not so universal anymore, but who's going to argue that felons should get uh, the basic income? That's a sort of very simple way, you know, what, more money for us. That's the kind of way, way of doing it. And so you can kind of make these sort of general rules, which, uh, you know, discriminate against groups, but in ways that are kind of considered to be reasonable in some way, you know, and, and that's the sort of thing which political entrepreneurs, legislators are kind of get, are kind of get into. And that's why something like a universal basic income under the current framework is kind of unstable, because it's too easy to kind of carve out exceptions or kind of give a little extra to someone, take something, take something back from from someone else. If you kind of had it based on a rule set, whereby, I don't know, a set of transactions 
that were taking place across the blockchain ecosystem just got collected, like a very small sum each time, got collected into a kind of common pool and then just got distributed to every unit that was participating in the system. You could kind of specify that has to happen in a kind of egalitarian way. And there would be no way without fundamentally changing the blockchain, i.e. kind of getting people more or less unanimously to agree to the change, you couldn't kind of change it. So it would kind of be a way of, of kind of enforcing the generality of, um, you know, of a kind of tax and subsidy system. And that would kind of like take you back onto the kind of central, you know, the kind of central point of this, which is to ensure that everyone is benefiting equally from participation in a kind of governance structure. It's Funny to me, so I understand the the Buchananite uh, constitutional political economy point that you're making. And one of the, I'm going to introduce a new conceptual framework that hopefully isn't too confusing to append on to this, but the difference between the civil law tradition and the common law tradition. So in the UK and all of the former dominions and colonies, we all sort of grew up as societies with the common law, which is judge-made right? Hundreds and hundreds of years of judges making decisions, solving actual problems on the ground that eventually becomes more and more codified and accepted as part of the legal tradition of the society. That's like the the very basic understanding of the common law as I have it. I'm sure you're champing at the bit here to uh, fill in some of these gaps. And when I think of the civil law tradition and the Napoleonic Code, I think of this as a sort of French Enlightenment attempt to, through only one's rationality, design ex ante a somewhat perfect or nearly perfect system of law that is totally impartial and in fact judges no longer need to interpret the law they merely apply it as basically a type of technician of the law and that's the sort of ideal it's totally impartial but i think we both prefer the common law tradition which is much more you could say wet so like like it requires human interaction. It's like wet versus dry systems. The common law is a wet system. It requires human judgment, intervention, intuition. The civil law is dry. It's almost mechanical. And if, if I'm being, maybe this is unfair to blockchain, but I think of blockchain as having its programmability, especially with something like Ethereum, is being much closer to the civil law tradition, which is if these conditions are met, then this thing happens. It's almost like a bending machine of law. But how many circumstances is it appropriate to have a vending machine of law? Do you not want to have some sort of uh, wet intervention in there, like a judge who can shape things and take uh, things outside of what would be taken into account under a more mechanical, programmable, civil law type of institution? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, Ross. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd push back a little bit on your conceptualization. Um, on like this kind of s- distinction between common law and uh, and civil law, in the sense that you're quite right, you know, judges have had a lot of input into the development of the um, of the common law. Or rather, it's kind of officially recognised. That's the difference. The civil code denies that judges have had much input into it, although in fact they probably have had more than they're prepared to recognise. So in other words, when you kind of look at the details, it, it, inevitably there's actually a mix, and there's been quite a lot of codification over the years. In fact, I believe it was. Um, I can't remember which King Henry, but I think there was one of the early King Henrys. Where does the common law come from? Why is it called the common law? Well, actually, it was kind of a consolidation of a bunch of laws that were existing in different respects throughout England, as it was at the time. 
And basically it was getting a little messy and, you know, the Napoleon of the 1300s or where, where, whenever this, this Henry was around, he decided uh, that it was time to do a little bit of consolidation. And to be fair, it was based on, you know, existing, you know, the sort of stuff that judges did, but it also involved a degree of codification and making things a little bit more transparent. But I, I think you're quite right that you can't actually rely on either mere codification or like evolution. Like we often think of the the common law as having a kind of evolutionary uh, feature to it. And um, I, I think that kind of makes sense when you kind of understand that we're not talking about any one blockchain or one blockchain to rule them all. Rather, these are kind of designed, you know, even when a judge is making a decision, they have to make it on the basis of some design, even if it's just, you know, to fit the case at hand with some sort of generality. What we're going to have is is a great deal of blockchains, some that come in and offer complete a complete alternative way of doing something and then get integrated in, and also an awful lot of deliberation, discussion and contestation in existing blockchains. So I think, in, you know, integrating governance structures you know, I imagine them to be extremely super majoritarian because we don't want, you know, majority rule to kind of come back into it. But there will be opportunities to bring in that kind of wetness, as you as you uh, describe it, into the system. And in fact, there's a very interesting uh, development. It's a decentralized um, autonomous organization, a DAO, Aragon. They've recently introduced a court and you can sign up as a juror if you have a chance. Ross, I know you're very busy these days, um, uh, but um, uh, I certainly want to want to sort of uh, get some experience with this. You can sign up as a as a juror, and you get to hear cases. They're mostly about cases to do with how to run uh, blockchains at the moment. But there's going to be some very interesting substantive cases that are going to come up. For example, how to handle copyright and ownership on the blockchain. Uh, that sort of stuff cannot be automated. So you're going to have to have human eyes. Well, uh, being uh, compensated effectively. So this is this is how it's going to work. They're going to pay people to act as neutral arbiters, bringing in that kind of third party-ishness again, but, uh, you know, kind of anonymous, abstracted third parties who will then uh, render a judgment, which will then be binding on the blockchain because the, the parties that are in dispute have agreed to be bound by that, uh, by that decision. And so, uh, you know, I think we can kind of see many of these as uh, the opportunity to kind of nest human decisions and human deliberation back into the system. The only difference is it's going to be designed in such a way that it's kind of, uh, you know, ideally neutral by design, uh, you know, by the, by the choice situation. And uh, and also that it's it's going to be uh, binding in a way that um, uh, in a way that is sort of hard to reverse just by I don't know bringing up the judge or something or uh, you know kind of getting someone else someone someone you prefer on your supreme court or you know at a, at a higher level of deliberation to kind of get to, to kind of get the decision reversed like the decision will kind of stand um, in in this sort of um, in this kind of binding way. Why do you think that if we do have a market for rules? People will compete to be the best rather than the most permissive in a bad way. Uh, well, I, I can say that I don't know that. I'm kind of optimistic in the sense that I think that most people are interested. I think I think I think we do. You know, I'm going to sound you know like a real old-fashioned liberal here, or rather, you know, kind of a, a proper kind of Rawlsian liberal. But I I do think that people have uh, natural sympathies for each other. I do think people, most people develop a strong moral sense, unless you're a kind of psychopath or some kind of sociopath. Uh, you know, that's a kind of minority set of people. And I think most people will filter towards rules, which they understand to be uh, respectful of people's rights. That's a hope, but I can't be sure. 
And of course, part of the problem that we're dealing with in the in the blockchain system is, uh, you know, you know, there are whales, there are uh, enormously powerful people who start off by launching these blockchains or kind of get in very early, and therefore they have a kind of a much weightier say in how these things go. Uh, although generally speaking, they seem to be a bunch of extremely socially engaged, one might say altruistic, certainly open-minded uh, nerds that are kind of like running the system at the moment. You can never be sure if, if someone else might be able to get in and exploit the technology in some way. So so one reason why I'm looking at this uh, with my own theories and with, uh, you know, with uh, my own look is, is that, is that um, you know, I don't think uh, this process is entirely deterministic. I think that uh, we're going to reach some critical junctures, as kind of uh, the historical institutionalists say, where we're going to take a, a route, we're going to decide how we're going to use a piece of technology, how we're going to use this technology. And uh, it's very important that the people who have the power to wield it understand its power and uh, try to kind of build in these kind of uh, liberal constraints. What I will say is that I think that um, a function of this technology is that it kind of is it's got this kind of liberal bias in the sense that if two parties want to transact, this thing kind of facilitates it. So then the question is, in a world where people can engage in any two-party transactions or like bilateral transactions that they want to, how many externalities are there going to be as a result? So is the typical thing that someone wants to do when they're engaged in a two-party transaction, is the person you know, going to a vendor and buying a soda? Is that what most people are doing? Are they going to want to buy a house for their family? That kind of thing. Is that the sort of thing that most people want to spend the vast majority of their resources doing? I hope so. Is it, in fact, once you've got these two-party transactions and they can take place in this kind of sequestered place and they can be binding in this in this kind of very bizarre you know, very bizarrely strong way, are people going to be taking out contract killings as a matter of course? Is that the sort of thing that people want to do when they have the power to do it? Is it going to be more than a minority? If it's just a minority, we can put systems in place to stop that. But if actually a lot of people secretly want to do that kind of stuff, if they want to pollute rivers, if they want to dump toxic waste into the ocean, that kind of thing, if that's actually what people want to do, then unfortunately, blockchains will also have a way of facilitating that. Uh, and so, you know, I suppose we're going to find out maybe in a much more visceral way exactly what human nature is like at, at this point. So, you know, a conservative who might tend to be a bit more dispositionally pessimistic about people's natural propensities, I believe in a natural propensity to chit chat, to truck and barter, uh, to feel uh, mutual sympathy for each other. That's that's like oh, my, my bias or my inclination. Uh, if you're a conservative, if you're more like Hobbes, if uh, well, Hobbes is kind of a liberal, I don't know who, who's a kind of uh, uh, you, you probably think of a, a nice old school conservative who thinks that unless everyone has the fear of God in them, they're going to start killing each other. Then, you know, I think you have a right. If that's your disposition, you have a right to be worried about blockchain. And I, and I take those views seriously because I don't I don't want I don't want this thing spiraling out of control. Come on, man. Can't you just pick a side and give it to me uh, straight here? Now there's all this nuance involved. I don't know what to think anymore. Come on, Nick. What are you doing? What As you I say, doing? my propensity is to think that uh, most people don't like to hurt other people. They want to get on with their own lives. They want to love and they want to be loved and they want to be lovely. That's how most people, if they've been treated in a vaguely um, reasonable way growing up, that's the way most people can comport themselves. And if that's correct, then we'll find a way of using this technology 
to engage in much more effective commercial transactions and also dispute resolutions, you know, all the, you know, the stuff of governance. We're going to be able to do that and we're going to be able to do that much more cheaply, much more quickly and without reliance on a kind of vast political elite which basically specializes in the in the use of violence out of necessity because right now that's the way that governance gets off the ground you know we rely on this kind of core of uh, this this group of people that uh, lay a claim to the legitimate use of violence in a given territory that's how we get governance done at the moment and i think that we can we can either abolish that in the long run or at the very least we can kind of disintermediate that so that you know you still have a few people who specialize in violence for when it comes down to it you know in a physical space in some sort of spatial area there's a dispute at some point someone's going to have to come down and go like actually you're going to have to disperse you're going to have to move back to this line that's the kind of you know that's 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 what it would do but we can rely much much less on that that's like my hope i think uh, there's a good chance we can we can get there and i think um blockchain on a technological and also on a conceptual level can help us get there multiple angles i want to take first is I'm not sure if anyone out there listening realizes that you dropped four or five references to Adam Smith in such a short period of time. <laughs> All these like coded words, truck and barter. I think you said something about yeah. impartial spectator or something very similar to that. <laughs> to be yeah, no, that's right. I'm sorry. I've got, I've got Adam Smith on my mind at the moment. Uh, you know, what can I say? I, I read a lot of liberal political economy. And uh, yeah, Smith is, uh, yeah. In fact, if you want to understand a little bit about what kind of blockchain can do. You can do a lot worse than read Smith's, it's not really a digression. There's a digression on silver, but I don't think it's in there. But he he talks about the way that paper currency works. You know how libertarians hate paper money, or at least they hate paper money that's not backed by, by gold. Smith was not a libertarian, and he especially wasn't a libertarian in that particular way. He kind of understood the value of having kind of the ability to issue credit from reputable authorities and the ability to basically use much fewer resources. In other words, not have to worry about kind of trudging your gold around, you know, and worrying about it getting robbed or or whatever. You know, you can just have this paper that's kind of easily concealed, much more easily transferred. And therefore, the the amount of resources, the, the amount of real, real resources, which doesn't get have to be spent on gold, which, you know, like mining gold, which is then just stored somewhere and like has to be guarded. Instead, relying on a kind of more abstract system, which allows, you know, the whole economy, I think, you know, you kind of like to to take wings of, of flight. Uh, I, 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 that, that particular line, I, I am probably butchering slightly, but um, it's a great way of understanding from a very, you know, from this, this very initial stage, the importance of transaction costs. This, I think that's what Smith is talking about when he's discussing the introduction of kind of paper currency and the kind of banking system. It reduces the transaction costs, which means that basically you get to keep more of your labor. You labor long and hard to produce some specific good, and you get to transfer it into a more effective economy much more quickly. So you get to save, you basically keep a lot more of that value for yourself to spend on the goods that you couldn't produce yourself, but other people can, can produce very efficiently. So it's something that we often neglect, you know, we kind of have this idea that like, oh, you know, money, money is money. It just works, you know, unless we're in Zimbabwe or Venezuela. But actually, it's still got its costs associated with it. There's an enormous financial system that's basically trying to, well, you know, it's acting as an intermediary. And because it's acting as an intermediary and they're all hanging out in Wall Street, they get to kind of, you know, engage in a bit of conspiracy against the economy to make sure they're taking bigger chunks out of it than they really have to. And uh, blockchain 
through decentralized finance uh, really has the opportunity to, um, you know, I won't say wipe out, you know, Wall Street, but let's say, you know, basically make sure it is only literally one street that's doing it rather than like, you know, probably the single biggest funder of the 1%. So, you know, uh, there's a kind of egalitarian hope in what we're thinking of now that, you know, there's a there's a kind of system which is extremely efficient in the sense that it's, it is to our benefit, but is also highly uh, redistributionary and it redistributes upwards, redistributes upwards towards people who have the wherewithal to handle these systems. And um, blockchain basically is going to turn, you know, much of what these highly paid um, professionals do, sad to say for them, into dApps. You know, people, you know, stuff, you know, you can have a financial advisor or a financial intermediary in your pocket, you know, that you can um, use with your phone instead. So that that's, I think that's, um, you know, where a lot of, where a lot of this value is going to come from. That makes sense. And Brief note about Adam Smith, if you're listening, you, you probably only know, well, I don't know, I say you probably only know, but his popular reputation is that of being sort of an unapologetic, ruthless, invisible hand loving capitalist. But his legacy is quite contested. And in fact, he's one of those people that if you take theory of moral sentiments into account, which is his other famous book, the scholars are oftentimes progressives too. Like uh, I saw Sam Fleischacker has a new book about Adam Smith that just came out. But it's called something like Knowing Me, Knowing You, which might, of course reminds me of ABBA and then reminds me of Alan Partridge, your countryman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, you're very knowledgeable of, um, yes, Alan oh, Partridge's yeah. core, core British comedy there. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Steve, Steve Coogan. Love that guy. But you didn't expect yeah. Adam Smith all the way to Steve Coogan in, uh, in one fell swoop, but I just did it. Um, you know, I, I would love, I would love it if Alan Partridge had had the chance to interview Adam Smith. That would have been an amazing, <laughs> an amazing meeting of minds. All right, uh, all right. on North Norfolk Digital as well. North North yeah, Norfolk yeah. Digital. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wait, 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 hold on a second, Nick. I yeah, want yeah. to follow up. I had to make this dumb joke, but now, now we're getting into it. Which is, you, you've already danced around this a little bit, and I was wondering if you could maybe give a more concrete answer to it. But to what degree do you think technology determines our political institutions? Uh, or vice versa, which, which, or is the causality bi-directional? Uh, how does this work and how might blockchain change it? Yeah, I, I guess it's certainly not deterministic. Uh, you know, it's sort of bi-directional in that sense. Although I, I suppose the problem is, is that we're, you know, what's it bi-directional with? Political decisions, political institutions, culture, norms, agency. So unfortunately, it's going to be multi-directional and complex. That's going to be the answer. So, you know, sorry, and doing a bit more dancing around. But um, I'll say that it's clear that technology, you know, you kind of have to be willing to kind of lean into it unless, I don't know, if, if you're like a ruler and you think this thing is going to be a complete catastrophe, you could try and destroy it altogether. Very, very hard because now like people kind of understand it. So, you know, and no one knows who Satoshi is. So it's going to be very hard to kind of to kind of put it away. And in that sense, I kind of see it as sort of paralleling the printing press, which is an amazing piece of technology, but is kind of conceptual more than anything else. Like it, it kind of uses some fairly common tools, you know, to kind of put together, you know, sort of ink, you know, the sort of the sort of metal, you know, sort of machine tools or whatever it is that you kind of use to to put it together. And it's kind of been invented a few times in a few places. It's just, uh, you know, but it happened to pick up in sort of, you know, Renaissance Europe and uh, kind of take off and basically cause Protestantism. Well, sorry. Don't want to be talking too deterministically, but let's say it influenced attitudes towards religion in an important way. 
And at that point, leaders kind of have a choice because um, uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, fiercely resisted the printing press. So, you know, I mean, I think they could see where this was coming. You know, you're going to end up with with a lot of people talking, discussing, sharing ideas. And, um, you know, and in a sense, they were right because Europe was riven with, uh, with civil wars and wars, you know, for ages while settling how religious liberty was going to work. And, and, and part of that was, you know, triggered by the invention of the printing press. So it certainly plays a, a big role, but there's choice for the way that existing political elites can kind of cope with these systems. And and I think that there are right choices out there, or rather there are better choices, which can mean that the upside is is kind of overwhelming, alongside some uh, kind of inevitable downsides, you know, that, that you see whenever a kind of large change in regime takes place. I, I, in a sense, I think it's really up to policymakers or the existing political elite whether, you know, blockchains prompt a smooth transition towards more consensual governance, which, you know, every Everyone says they're up to, you know, most people in developed countries kind of claim to be liberals of a kind. So if you're a liberal of a kind, you should be very excited about making use of these of these resources, this new technology to make government more transparent, to make it more rule bound and more impartial. You should be really excited about that just as as as, as I am. Uh, so I think I think that's that's certainly possible. It could be you know part of that smooth transition, or alternatively, if it's rejected because it's nasty, it's liked by nerds, some disreputable people are using it to trade in drugs and sex work or or, or what have you, then it's going to take on a much more anarchist bent, and it's going to um, be something which is you know going to lead, uh, I suppose, eventually to. Um, you know, to a lot more coercion and violence as, as people try and stop people from using these alternative governance arrangements. Um, I, I was just reading a fascinating thread on Twitter by my, uh, my former colleague at uh, King's College London, Anton Howes, and he was discussing the way that, in fact, we can grow tobacco in the UK. It's fine. You know, the environment, it's okay for it. It's not the perfect, but it's fine. And farmers used to try and grow it. But uh, uh, Virginia... Well, the, the colony of Virginia had the monopoly on, on tobacco within the British Empire at that time. And so, you know, farmers would grow it, soldiers would come around and destroy it in various parts of South, South England. And, uh, you know, it made sense. The technology was there. We discovered it. You know, we brought it back from the new world. We could have used it. And uh, instead of saying, oh, that's great, you know, if you can grow it, sell it. Instead, it was used as an opportunity to, you know, engage in, you know, essentially kind of random violence with between farmers and, uh, and the royal enforcers of a kind of state monopoly. Part of what happens next is, um, is up to the political elite. Is that the, the pipe weed from the South Farthing? Does that mean uh, anything to you? I'm afraid. Afraid it. Uh, <laughs> the Tolkienian nonsense that I just <laughs> spit at you. Oh, okay. Oh, the th- well. Uh, yeah. No. I suppose. Yeah. There. I. I do recall the wizard Gandalf tucking into a pipe. So yeah. No. That makes makes sense. Yes. In a- it's all uh, an elaborate allegory about monopolistic economic institutions during the colonial era, right? Like Georgian colonial policy. That's what Lord uh, of the Rings well, is about, well, right? The Lord of the Rings. Well, yeah. I, I'm sure. I, I mean, it, it's got a lot of allegories. I mean, it could be the state. It could be nuclear power. I, I, I suppose the great. I mean, what you find in works of literature like that is that they kind of bear in uh, the, the author himself probably doesn't quite know. Tolkien probably didn't quite know exactly what point he was making. So you can kind of impose a great deal. Um, you can always bring a new interpretation to it. But yes, empire and the state. That sounds like Mordor to me. <laughs> I'm sure you learned this when growing up and going to school, but the safest answer is to always just assume it's Christian allegory. 
that's, a that's, always, yeah. that's, that's always the simplest, simplest way to go. Okay. Uh, listeners know this has now officially gotten to garbage time. <laughs> I ruined it. I put us onto this track. We should probably start concluding here. Nick, also, uh, if you're listening, do you like episodes like this that are the environment came up maybe zero times? I'm sure you've listened to this. You can understand how this might apply to environmental governance and climate change issues. But hopefully it's interesting for its own sake. I have no idea. Nick, well, uh, well, I'm kind of curious yeah. what's going to happen with your ERC token uh, next, because presumably that's the other half of the enterprise for Nori. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Nori's built on Ethereum and uh, yeah, uses some of their token standards for how we designed ours. But ours aren't out into the wild at this point uh, of listening, which is what, June 24th? But, well, uh, I, I think we just have to emphasize, you know, I, I mean, we talked a while back about commons institutions and the way that uh, commons can work better, perhaps for landowners who want to take advantage of the uh, the Nori ecosystem. Basically, the idea behind a blockchain is that you, if designed correctly, you don't have to trust the company that has launched it. You just have to trust the code that they've launched. Because once it's launched, it's going to, and it's, you know, being used by a large enough number of people, it will be the network that will decide, you know, how the tokens kind of get uh, get awarded, how they get distributed. And so, you know, perhaps you'll end up even using, you know, Aragon Court as a way of kind of resolving questions where there's a there's an issue of like whether like sufficient carbon abatement was conducted in a particular process, whether it kind of counts towards the kind of token. So in other words, there's a lot of opportunity for kind of decentralization uh, in order to kind of provide for these kind of common goods, you know, which have been tough. They're tough for either the private economy or for the public economy to kind of manage. And um, I think what uh, what we're going to find with blockchains is this kind of dramatic expansion of the use of kind of um, common institutions instead. I suppose um, what we might think of as mutuals. In, 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 the, in the UK, the financial system used to be dominated by mutually owned building societies. In other words, it was lenders lending to each other, you know, different stages in their lifetime with no shareholders. It was just people who kind of saved and lent. Is that what and, the, mutual, um, the mutual means that's kind of, in like in like insurance like companies, insurance to, this companies to this day? Like Omaha. Yeah, Omaha. no, that, that, that's that's right. And and then you know, I suppose what happened in the sort of what we, we called it the Big Bang in the UK when kind of Thatcher came along. And to be fair, you know, she was tackling, I suppose, a lot of statist enterprise at the time, but got swept up in that kind of reforming zeal to kind of say, oh, you know what really works? Shareholder capitalism. We need more shareholder capitalism. She ended up encouraging and in some cases actively demutualizing uh, a lot of, um, you know, previously successful, very long lived organizations and uh, effectively, you know, privatizing them. Because on the basis that shareholders are the best people to manage an enterprise, presumably because they have a residual claimancy. And that means that, you know, if the enterprise fails, they get wiped out. So they've got a very strong interest in trying to maintain it and trying to make it profitable. But, you know, when it comes to a lot of things, including the financial sector, but including, but also including the provision of environmental goods, often that kind of straightforward private enterprise doesn't work so well. Uh, what we want is kind of different sorts of membership organizations to kind of do it. We can look to this without using kind of blockchain technology, but blockchains might be a way, for example, of preventing these organizations from being turned into something either fully private or fully public after they've been launched. In other words, they can kind of help keep the organization under the control of the people who kind of who've initiated it and are participating in it. And when, you know, you've got environmental goods that require kind of different 
specific contributions from various people and people need to be able to observe what they're doing in order to kind of, you know, kind of, in order to kind of uh, uh, release their rewards. That sort of system could work very well on the blockchain. You're just angling for another episode, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You're mine. It's always great fun. Yeah. Having a willing audience because, you know, usually I'm dealing with, um, uh, I suppose, involuntary audiences, people who have to turn up because they have to sign the register. Oh, <laughs> just uh, to get their degree? Yeah, that's right. Not a great way yeah. to, to conceptualize your students, Nick. But yeah, I, I suppose you might fun. say they pre-committed to it. They they consented to it at some point to okay. the regime. Um, okay. But uh, but you every every time you agree, we agree to meet. You're 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 doing it afresh. So you know, I'm, I'm more confident that at least you enjoyed the last one. That's true. No, I'm happy. It's it's fun to to talk on this level, and I've always gotten a lot out of these ways of thinking. I wish they were more present because these conversations are all super interesting. I think with politics, we end up so far zoomed in on whatever is actually happening that these more abstract questions of why is an independent judiciary important? What kind of federal system makes sense? How do you have the benefits of local institutions that don't run amok and do terrible things to people uh, without any sort of check? What happens when a government gets too big? Those questions are actually really fun and the answers are multivariant and not at all settled. And there are trade-offs any direction you go. And it's just super vibrant. So I, I'm, I find myself really interested in these discussions whenever they happen. And I'm grateful to have you on because you force it into that intellectual space in the best kind of way. Oh, thanks, Ross. Yeah. Well, let's do it again sometime soon. I'm sure you'll send me another paper and I'll say, wow. Dang it. I guess we have to do another in... What should we even call <laughs> these? Nori's Political Economy Series? Yeah, you want to you want to like uh, create a shard, uh, as they say on Ethereum. You know, like a separate a separate channel for these. Uh, I can recommend some more people to um, to talk to. You really should get Ilya uh, Mutasashvili on your podcast if you haven't already. At some point, he's got some very interesting ideas on uh, the provision of common goods. Actually, so um, yeah, I'm hoping to write something with him soon. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of people. If you want to talk political economy, there are there are people out there. Yeah, I, I would be. I want to see how people like this. If you're listening and you say, hey, this is fascinating and I really liked it, you should drop us a line at podcast at nori.com. If you say snooze, I just want environmental and carbon removal stuff, you can write me there too. Uh, it's good to know either way. But I entertain myself. That's the only way I know if an episode is good half the time, Nick. Is Did I enjoy it? Did I have fun doing it? And if, if the answer is yes, I think it probably turned out good. So I think we passed that test. I hope you're not offended by me asking on air if people liked your episode. You know, oh, no, no, that's that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we're, we're big on feedback at the University of Lincoln. Uh, very Receiving nice. it and giving it. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, thanks for being here, Nick. Thanks very much, Ross. Links to, to Nick's work is in the show notes. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tell your friends. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.